Welcome to Conference Coverage Highlights presented by ReachMD Radio on XM160. Conference Coverage Highlights features the latest clinical information and research findings presented during the American Academy of Neurology's 61st Annual Meeting, which took place April 25th through May 2nd, 2009, in Seattle. About 11,000 people from around the world came to the American Academy of Neurology's annual meeting. The meeting featured 2,000 presentations. Research was presented on advances in Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, and several other neurological conditions, such as tuberous sclerosis complex and chronic demyelinating polyneuropathy. New research on Alzheimer's disease presented at the meeting included a study conducted at Boston University that looked for the APOE Epsilon 4 allele. APOE Epsilon 4 is strongly associated with dementia. The researchers looked at data on over 700 enrollees in the Framingham Offspring study during the years 1999 through 2005. Almost 300 of the enrollees were middle-aged and had either one or two parents diagnosed with dementia. The researchers found that among APOE Epsilon 4 carriers, those whose parents had been diagnosed with dementia had between double and triple the risk of poor verbal and visual memory scores compared with those whose parents did not have Alzheimer's disease. According to investigators, what this means for the brain is that having a parent with Alzheimer's disease is the equivalent of about 15 years of aging. The researchers say that these findings are important because they suggest that having a parent with Alzheimer's disease has an effect on memory function, even if the person does not exhibit the classic signs of Alzheimer's disease. Research out of the United Kingdom was presented on the CLARITY trial. CLARITY stands for Cladribine Tablets Treating Multiple Sclerosis. Many treatments for multiple sclerosis are delivered intravenously. This study looked at oral delivery specifically. The two-year study was supported by Merck. Over 1,300 patients with relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis were randomly assigned to either low-dose or high-dose cladribine or placebo. The result? Oral cladribine showed a greater than 50% reduction in annualized relapse rates with both the high-dose and low-dose regimens as compared to placebo. Two studies were presented on multiple sclerosis treatments. In one study, researchers in Italy found a higher-than-expected risk of leukemia associated with mitoxantrone treatment. Investigators analyzed data on nearly 3,000 patients who were treated with mitoxantrone, including 21 who developed leukemia. Mitoxantrone is one of only two drugs shown to benefit patients with secondary progressive MS who are having attacks. Researchers found a 0.74 incidence of leukemia. This was significantly higher than previously reported incidences of 0.07 to 0.25%. The researcher said that the potential risk of acute leukemia should be carefully considered against the potential benefits of mitoxantrone treatment on every single patient. They also said that all multiple sclerosis patients treated with mitoxantrone must undergo a prolonged and careful hematologic follow-up. Investigators from Denmark presented findings from a second study. The study showed that combination treatment of MS patients with methylprednisolone and interferon beta-1A is associated with more beneficial effects on disease activity than interferon alone. Researchers randomly assigned about 340 patients to receive methylprednisolone and interferon beta-1A or interferon beta-1A and placebo. The benefit of interferon is moderate and not everyone responds to the treatment. Methylprednisolone is typically given for acute MS attacks, but not for ongoing treatment. After three years, the researchers found the group who received combination treatment of methylprednisolone and interferon beta-1A had 38% fewer relapses than the group who received interferon only. This study was supported by Biogen-IDEC. 
Data was presented on the use of a mammalian target of rapamycin MTOR inhibitor. It related to the syndrome tuberous sclerosis complex. Tuberous sclerosis complex is a major cause of epilepsy, mental retardation, and autism in children. The compound was identified by basic molecular studies, showing that a protein involved in a specific pathway can be targeted by a rapamycin inhibitor. There was new research concerning chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. This study was supported by Talacris Biotherapeutics. Investigators randomly assigned 117 patients with chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy to receive either immune globulin intravenous 10% caprolate chromatography purified, known as Gamunex, or placebo every three weeks for up to 24 weeks. The researchers found that Gamunex was associated with multiple improvements in physical disability levels and quality of life measures when compared to placebo. In a statement, one of the lead researchers said the finding is important because there has been no FDA-approved dosing regimen for an effective course of intravenous immune globulin therapy to reduce neuromuscular disability and improve quality of life in patients who have chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. A study done in France showed that optimal lipid and blood pressure control significantly reduces the risk of stroke and other major cardiovascular events in patients who've had a recent stroke or a transient ischemic attack and are not known to have coronary heart disease. Researchers were looking at four risk factors for stroke, high LDL cholesterol, low HDL cholesterol, high triglycerides, and high blood pressure. The researchers discovered that for each risk factor that's controlled, the risk of stroke and other major cardiovascular problems is reduced. The study was called the Stroke Prevention by Aggressive Reduction in Cholesterol Levels, or SPARCL, Sparkle. 4,500 patients who had recently experienced a stroke or mini-stroke were followed for just under five years. Half of the patients were given the drug atorvastatin to lower cholesterol, and half were given a placebo drug. When all four risk factors were being controlled at optimal levels, patients were 65% less likely to have another stroke. When three of the risk factors were at optimal levels, patients were 38% less likely to have another stroke. And with two risk factors controlled, patients were 22% less likely to have another stroke. When only one risk factor was at the optimal level, the result was only a 2% drop in the likelihood of another stroke. The 2% drop was compared to patients who did not meet any of the optimal levels. According to the study's authors, these findings suggest that there's a cumulative effect to lowering cholesterol and blood pressure. According to researchers, the drug pregabalin seems to be effective in treating patients with idiopathic restless leg syndrome and helping them sleep better. Pregabalin is widely used to treat epilepsy, nerve pain, generalized anxiety, and fibromyalgia. The study was supported by Pfizer Incorporated. Restless leg syndrome, or RLS, is characterized by a strong urge to move the legs, which is often accompanied by sensations that include numbness, tingling, or burning. Patient symptoms generally become worse at night. They can be relieved temporarily with activity. Researchers followed 58 people with restless leg syndrome for 12 weeks. 30 people were given the drug pregabalin and the rest were given a placebo. Nearly two-thirds of the patients who took pregabalin had no RLS symptoms while taking the drug. Researchers found that the symptoms of patients who still had symptoms improved by 66%. Symptoms among the group who received the placebo worsened by 29%. Sleep studies were also conducted because RLS symptoms get worse at night and make it difficult for patients to get adequate sleep. Sleep studies were done at the beginning and the end of the research. The researchers found that participants taking pregabalin spent more time in slow-wave sleep, also known as deep sleep, suggesting that pregabalin reduced symptoms in patients with RLS and helped them get better quality sleep.
There were new guidelines presented at the conference regarding women with epilepsy and pregnancy. The guidelines were developed by the American Academy of Neurology and the American Epilepsy Society regarding women with epilepsy and childbearing. They came out of a review by the authors of all scientific studies available on women with epilepsy and pregnancy. It's estimated that three to five babies out of 1,000 born in the United States are born to a woman who has epilepsy. The guidelines say that it's relatively safe for women with epilepsy to become pregnant. These women have not been found to be at substantially increased risk of late pregnancy bleeding, premature contractions or premature labor and delivery, or of requiring a cesarean section. The guidelines also say that a woman who's not had a seizure in nine months before becoming pregnant will probably not have a seizure during her pregnancy. However, women of childbearing age who've had epilepsy should avoid the epilepsy drug valproate during pregnancy. The guidelines' lead author cited evidence that suggests that the drug valproate is linked to increased risk for birth defects and decreased cognitive skills in children. This evidence is tied to valproate used on its own or with other medications. With regard to epilepsy medications, the guidelines also suggest that ideally women should not take more than one epilepsy drug at a time while pregnant. The guidelines say that taking more than one epilepsy drug at a time has been found to increase the risk of birth defects. The guidelines also recommend considering the avoidance of the epilepsy drugs phenytoin and phenobarbital. These drugs increase the risk of decreased thinking skills in the children of epileptic mothers who take these drugs. The guidelines say that doctors should warn patients that smoking by pregnant women with epilepsy may increase the risk of premature contractions or labor. These guidelines were published in April in the online issue of Neurology, as well as in the online issue of the journal Epilepsia. Thank you for listening to conference coverage highlights from the American Academy of Neurology's 2009 annual meeting, which took place in Seattle April 25th through May 2nd.